I felt a bit of a nudge in my spirit to actually go to London and meet Pete for a cup of coffee just to get to know him was when I read God on Mute. Um, not only was it excellently written, in my opinion, and one of the best books on the mysteries of unanswered prayer and the, some of the tussles and wrestles that go on about that, but also because, um, as we compared paired notes, we, we both realised that we'd been through similar journeys of having spouses that had faced considerable challenges health-wise and just kind of how do you navigate some of that when God is opening fairly expansive ministry, how, how do you do that? So I found a kind of a kindred spirit in reading the chapters and thinking, oh right, yeah, he's able to articulate much better than I can some of the, the dilemmas and dimensions. And I, I had to say when I met Pete, I just, I just felt a kind of a, a heart click and I thought, I think this man's got something for us. Um, I hope it'll be a, a, a joy to Pete to be here. I know uh, that uh, Pete, the only other Portsmouth fan in the country, is also in this room. Uh, ben Parrish there, he's a Pompey fan, so you can compare notes at lunchtime. <laughs> you can compare notes at lunchtime. Um, but putting that aside, I, I, as many of you know, a little, well, some of you will know, a little bit of a mantra of mine is I don't want churches with prayer meetings, I want praying churches. I want some sort of, I want a, a culture of prayer amongst us. And I think the thing that <coughs> um, inspires me about what Pete and Brian are doing and have done is the fact that they've not only managed to create movement, but they've managed to help create a prayer movement. And both of those things together are extraordinarily difficult to do. So I kind of feel there's an anointing on Pete from the Lord to do with prayer. And I, I'm just thrilled that we've got just this day together and I said to him, whatever you say, I know you're going to leave a deposit, so I'm not, you know, do what you want, you know. Uh, so <clears throat> they were giving him a couple of sort of guidelines as to what I think would be most helpful. So let's, let's welcome Pete as he comes and speaks to us. Yeah, great. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much indeed for inviting me. We've been trying to fix this up for months and months and months, haven't we? Might even be a year, Mike. So it's it's brilliant to be here. Um, just on my way up. I didn't know you had an airport here in Norwich. Forgive me for that. So I'm flying up to Edinburgh tomorrow uh, for a couple of days with a friend there. He runs a leadership development centre. And uh, then off to South Africa. Uh, you South African? Fantastic. Uh, to Cape Town. Uh, where we've got a, one of our great intercessors owns a vineyard in Cape Town. First time I went to visit, I thought the meeting was happening at like a John Wimber derivative church. You have no idea how thrilled I was to discover it was a proper vineyard. So um, uh, we got a board meeting there, and um, uh, it's just a, a, an absolute thrill to be with you. Really, I do uh, three jobs. Um, one is that I pastor a local church in Guildford called Emmaus Road and um, it's just great fun, it's growing. I think every pastor should have a bit of a crush on their own church, you know, and I just, I just really, I get excited. I can be really boring talking about the people and the things that are going on, I just love it. And, um, 
you know, I've always been a local church sort of guy. Before 24/7 started, I'd planted two churches, and uh, that's that's kind of the way I'm wired. And then um, I also, as Mike said, find myself one of the leaders in a, a global prayer movement, which is quite bewildering to me because a few years ago, if you'd said, "What's the sort of thing you're worst at in the Christian life?" I'd have told you prayer. Uh, but God was just looking at, uh, for someone, I think, who was bad at prayer and had a big gob and was willing to admit that he's bad at prayer and take them on a bit of a, uh, you know, sort of fairground ride. And that's kind of uh, what, what's been happening with, with, with me. And so 24 7 is great fun. I'll tell you a little bit more about that for those who don't know in a, in a moment. And then I'm also the director of prayer uh, at Holy Trinity Brompton for Alpha International. And that is just bonkers. I mean, it's just insane. Hundreds of thousands being baptized through coming to Christ through the course in India, China. Uh, I think 20 million people have done the course. You know, HCB, um, you know, the course we just finished, we had a thousand people queuing up from the church all the way down to the Brompton Road around the corner towards Harrods. And this isn't, by the way, just to hear one gospel preach. That would be good, wouldn't it? This is to embark on a 10-a-week food-based, relational uh, journey of discovering the Christian faith. And listen, guys, we have to keep uh, waking ourselves up to see what the Lord is doing in our time. Thank God it's bigger than every one of us, any brand, any personality, any product. Amen? Yeah, uh, and we have to keep in mind because it, you know it is amazing. Because there was a time where any one of us who'd been around the block for more than about ten years, if someone had said there will come a day not too far away where a thousand people will queue up in central London to do a ten-week course to discover about Jesus Christ, and the average age would be twenty-five, we'd have thought that sounds a little bit like revival. What's happening on our watch? It's encouraging, isn't it? So I mean, ACB Alpha is great fun, very exciting, um, and it's funny because you know my background is with a sort of pioneer network. And uh, obviously your background is, is, is New Frontiers, and so there's a lot of similar currency and language, theology and understanding. And um, you will therefore understand this, that when I took the role at, at HTB Alpha, uh, I had uh, some of my friends who immediately thought I'd suddenly made it and become respectable, and others who thought I'd completely lost it and lost all... You understand that? And, um, and, and the thing is this... I always believed what the preachers said, which is that the kingdom of God is bigger than every denomination, every stream, every network. We're not going to re-evangelize these islands without the renewal of the old as well as the planting of the new. Um, God help us if we've got to plant a church in every single village in, you know, where, where there are already churches. Let's pray for some renewal because then we can have a much easier life, all of us. You know? And I, I just always thought that when everyone preached that stuff, they believed it. And it was quite surprising to me, therefore, that when you know, a, a major Anglican church says, will you come and help us? And I said, well, of course I will because we want to bless you guys and love you guys. And I'm sick and tired of leaders only ever building their own empire and only investing their time into things that have their own logo and their own ego attached to it. I'm sick of all of that. I've always thought we should all share our resources, work together, be different but love one another and bless one I've always believed that stuff, and I thought everyone else who was nodding around me believed it too. But they were the ones who then come to me saying, what on earth are you doing investing your time into the Anglican Church? And uh, I just think, God bless them, because God's doing something in our time uh, in, uh, in the Church of England that's quite extraordinary. So, there we go, there's my introduction. I'm married to Sammy, um, who's a girl. Checked. Just to prove the point, we have two children, one called Hudson, one called Daniel. We have a Labradoodle called Noodle. Um, and I am indeed a Portsmouth fan. Uh, in fact, I'm going to Fratton Park in, I 
think, two weeks' time. Uh, I, a church in Southsea said, would, would, I, would I come and do a day conference? I said, no, because I, I turned down about 80% of the speaking invitations I get. And then they said, how about if you bring your boys and we'll get you tickets to Fratton Park for the afternoon? And I said, that is so manipulative, but you, you, you win. So, um, yeah, God, God bless you. It's good for your prayer life, isn't it? Good. Um, I'm really thrilled Brian Heasley is with me. Mike's already mentioned him. Have you already been introduced, Brian? Brian, just, um, Brian's going to be sharing a little bit in a moment, but Brian is the National Director of 24-7 Prayer here, here, here in, in Britain. And uh, amazingly, he's based in this part of the world. And so in God's circuit board, I was quite excited about connecting him in with you guys, see how we can bless you and serve you, uh, because he will, I know you're not all in this part of the world, some of you in Stockholm and deal and wherever but uh, Brian's here and do get to know him and Brian headed up the work in Ibiza uh, for many years and if you want to talk about apostolic prayer fueled mission he did it for seven years I mean in a place that the Daily Mail used to call Sodom and Gomorrah and we said that sounds like a good place for the gospel and he went and proved that it is a very good place for the gospel and uh, so Brian and Tracy his family are based up in Dis so uh, there we go let's begin with a word of prayer shall we Lord Jesus, I can't think of any greater honour than that you would come and sit amongst us and talk to us. I would so much prefer it if you would just come physically and do that. And reluctantly I acknowledge that you, you seem to want to talk through scruffy idiots like me. And I pray you'd do that supernaturally. I pray, Lord, for words of faith and encouragement for every person in this room. Pray for atomic seeds to get sown, that things would multiply, not just over weeks, but over years and decades. Amen. So we're going to look at, uh, at, at two things. Um, in this session, we're going to uh, think about how we um, grow a culture of prayer in churches. And so we'll particularly think about corporate prayer. And then in the next session, we're going to think about how we grow the culture of prayer in our own lives as leaders. And we'll focus a little bit more on uh, personal prayer. Incredibly aware that Many of you are people of prayer. Um, but maybe in the economy of God, there's space for all of us to grow. You know, I loved what Mike said about not just being churches with prayer meetings. But how could our churches become houses of prayer for the nations? It's interesting when you look at that story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Firstly, how passionate he was about this vision 
for a house of prayer for the nations. That was the thing that stirred him like nothing else. And for that reason alone, we probably ought to give disproportionate emphasis to that prophetic word from Isaiah because it clearly had such powerful resonance for Jesus. But also, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, the synoptic gospels say that the cleansing of the temple and the house of prayer for the nations moment was just really before Jesus got crucified. In, there are a number of theologians who would say it was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the thing that got him crucified. That was the act of civil disobedience. But, you know, you okay? need a bit louder. Pull it closer to but, you know, uh, John's Gospel puts that story at the start of his ministry. Remember, it's, it's the very first thing that Jesus does after uh, well, at the beginning. And so if you're a conservative evangelical, you'll say, well, that's because it happened twice. That means it's unbelievably important. He started and ended his entire ministry with cleansing the temple and saying the House of Prayer of the Nations thing. Um, or if you're a slightly more relaxed evangelical, you'll say it's because John was more of a Tarantino, he was more of a movie maker, he thought very visually, he, re he played around with chronology to try and increase the dramatic impact of his gospel, and, uh, and he therefore took that story and said that is such a key for us to understand what Jesus is all about, he put it right at the start of Christ's whole ministry. Either way, we have to you know, see that this vision for a house of prayer for all nations is right at the heart of everything. And of course that's about prayer and worship and sacrifice. And of course it's about the court of the Gentiles. I know you'll all have done the talks. And of course it was about justice and the way that the poor were being corrupted in that place. And so prayer, mission and justice all somehow fit together passionately in the heart of what Jesus is all about. And frankly, I'm not going to take time telling you how important prayer is, because you already know that. Uh, it's just a waste of time. You know that prayer was integral to everything Jesus did and said. You know that you understand the importance of prayer. I think one of the great things we have to wrestle with is not so much prayer as a should, but prayer as a could. How do we help people to actually grow in prayer? And so we're going to be quite practical together. I think the other reason why it's good, though, for us to uh, think about how do we grow uh, the prayer uh, cultures of the churches that we invest into is this. Not just that it is clearly biblically an imperative, but that it is also something the Holy Spirit is doing in a very significant way globally right now. And so if we have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit of God is doing, in the nations of the earth, we will understand that he is calling his people to pray and that if you, uh, with whatever your role, whether you're planting a new church or whether you're uh, supporting a church or uh, translocally, if we're not equipping churches to pray, we are in danger. I mean this seriously of being out of step with what the Holy Spirit is doing. So... Um, an example. Um, I'll use an extreme example. So I, I was in Indonesia last year, and we had 100,000 people gathered together 
in the national stadium in Jakarta. I- Indonesia, as you know, is the fourth most populous nation on earth, and it's the biggest Muslim nation on earth, and we had 100,000 people together praying in there to Jesus. And uh, that was linked to other events all around the nation. So there's about three million at the prayer meeting that night. And um, thousands of young people have been fasting. It wasn't just a sort of a show, it was like passionate. And then I flew up to Medan in North Sumatra, and I visited a church there, which was planted uh, in 1993 with 119 people. Okay, So you can all visualize that. Church plant's quite a big church plant, 119 people, 1993. Today that church is 40,000 people, the world's largest Muslim nation. And uh, it's an extraordinary church because they are planting a new church every 11 days. And we have to humble ourselves here, don't we, sometimes, and go, there is more. So planting a new church every 11 days, they've uh, run a clinic that treats 200,000 people, has treated 200,000 people. They've translated the Bible into the dialects of five unreached people groups and the pastor asked me to speak to the weekly staff meeting which was several thousand people and um, what do you say you know uh, and um, he, he stood up at the end and it was like hearing the New Testament there was no funny stories or anything like that. he just he said I have heard that there are quarrels between some of you you must resolve it now before we come to the Lord's table. He waits and they do it. (laughs) You know, I'm thinking, wow. And then when they asked me to speak at a couple of the congregations on the Sunday morning, I I said, look, um, I'd like to tell a little story of, um, give me me a story of a healing that's happened recently, just to build people's faith. They said, okay. Um, And they told me about this girl who had a brain tumor (laughs) and she prayed for herself at church and it just disappeared they said but I wouldn't bother sharing it everyone's got stories like that <laughs> so I, I thought that's rubbish that's pretty cool you're getting hailed of a brain tumor I shared it it went down like a fart in a wetsuit they're like yeah great Jesus does miracles wow thank you white man for coming to tell us this shocking news you know and, and I said to him hey at the end I thought it'd be really good just to invite people forward to pray for them they said no under no circumstances you to do that I said, well, they said, if you allow them to start praying, you will lose control of the meeting and you'll never get it back again. And it's a different world out there. And so I said to the pastor, his name is Pastor Bam Bam, I said to him, uh, how did this all happen? I want to learn. He said to me, oh, we know exactly how it happened. 1998, we had uh, the Asian economic crisis. The Indonesian rupiah was massively devalued. There was massive unemployment. There was uh, unrest. There were riots in the streets. Their president of 32 years was deposed. The, church, uh, the, the nation was really on the verge of anarchy. And they uh, came together, a number of church leaders, and they said, look, either 2 Chronicles 7, uh, 13, 14 is true or it isn't. Either it's true that when this stuff happens, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face in terms of their wicked ways to pray, uh, I'll heal their land. Either that's true or it isn't. And so they began, he said, we began to pray 
24 hours a day, seven days a week in 1999. This is interesting to me because that's when we started our first little prayer room in Chichester that's now spread into over 100 nations. And it's where Mike Bickle, same day, actually, 5th of September 1999, started his in Kansas City because God is doing something, the nations of the earth, that's bigger than any product, any brand, or any personality. And we just get to surf the wave. And um, so he started praying nonstop. And he said, that was, you can plot it on a graph, that was when the tide turned. That's when the church started to explode, as we prioritized prayer. He said, would you like to see the prayer room? I said, yes, I would. So he took me up to this prayer room, which is on the top floor of a shopping center. And um, we stepped in there. It was not very impressive. But as we stepped in there, the presence of God was so strong that suddenly I didn't want to be anywhere else on planet Earth. can't explain it. Carla, who I was with, who heads up prayer for us globally, she just fell on the ground, the presence of God. I, we were meant to be going to lunch. I, I'm, I like lunch. I'm passionate about lunch and food in general. And um, it takes quite a lot to stop me eating. Uh, but suddenly I didn't want to go to lunch. I just wanted to be there. It's funny how the presence of God rewires you, isn't it? So driving off afterwards, because they're just building this massive auditorium. Extraordinary. They've got permission uh, to do so. Uh, that's another, another story. And they said, would you come and pray over this site that we're developing? Largest titanium roof in the world for a church in the largest Muslim nation on earth. And... Um, so we're driving off, and suddenly, as we're driving down this road, I feel this pressure in my chest. It's kind of an oppressive thing. And I look, and there's this Buddhist temple. And I turn to the guy I'm with, Mike, and I said, um, do you feel that? He said, yeah, I do. And I deliberately didn't tell him what I was feeling. I said, what do you feel? He said, I can feel this thing in my chest. It's right there. And I said, yeah, it's right there. And we're having the same physical manifestation of whatever it was that was going on and there's something about the presence of God that resensitizes you to the spiritual realm because I'm right on you know I understand that there's great merit in different faiths and some of them take you a little bit towards God only Jesus can take you the full you know I'm right on in my theology but there was something happening and so um, you know I came back from Indonesia thinking oh my goodness we got riots in the streets we've got massive economic crises and we're starting to see God's people turning to prayer in the most extraordinary way. Could this be a turning point for us? At Holy Trinity Brompton, we started praying at midnight on New Year's Eve, non-stop. And uh, we've been praying ever since, every minute of every hour. And it's going bananas. And in fact, you can't get an hour in the prayer room now till June or July. Um, which is pretty cool, isn't it? in an Anglican church, people praying like that. I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem, they'll never be quiet, uh, day or night. Right in the heart of London. Bishop of London came and commissioned it. People having angelic visitations in there, kids coming and drawing their prayers on the wall. Just so exciting. And just before we move on and just dig into the scriptures a bit, Brian, just come and tell us a little bit about some of what you see happening with prayer in, uh, in, in, in the UK right now. They're, they're good to build faith, these stories, aren't they? Uh, for us, the, the idea is that we serve the church in prayer, that we 
encourage the church to pray and that we catalyze prayer. And uh, this year alone in, in the UK, we've seen over 100 24-7 prayer rooms taking place. And they're only the ones that register. We've found out that probably about half just don't bother. Once you do a prayer room once, you don't register anymore. And because we're not incredibly precious about it, we're not trying to glean loads of statistics. We just really want to see prayer, prayer born. So uh, 100 this year alone churches saying we're going to pray 24-7 the prayer spaces and school initiative that's very much born out of 24-7 prayer right now this month there are 35 prayer spaces in schools that's that's where school will say we will put a classroom aside it's a and we will set it apart for christian prayer and they they will take they will take a class one after another after another through these through these prayer spaces in schools. There'll be forgiveness zones, all that kind of stuff. It's all based around the Lord's Prayer. It's absolutely uh, phenomenal. Organizations like Urban Saints, which are like, were crusaders, but they've gone cool now, the, the new name. And uh, they're, they're a year of prayer, non-stop, 52-week prayer. Uh, I was in a meeting yesterday with uh, Eden Project. They're looking to, to set up seven prayer rooms in the seven most deprived estates in London and, and work around, we're going, to pray for, we're going to pray for 24 hours for seven days around these seven estates. Now, these, these guys are activists. Do you, do you understand? They're not your kind of uh, contemplatives. These, these guys want action. But there's this kind of sense in which prayer and mission cannot be divorced and the, the, actually we need to breathe in God in the prayer room but breathe God out in the mission and that that is the natural rhythm of, of what they're looking to do breathe him in breathe him out so it's 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 a, a stunning thing to see that the 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 prayer spaces in schools the seven estates Elam have just approached us would like to do a whole non-stop year of prayer next year uh and one of the biggest things that we're in right now was uh, earlier this year, Pete and I had the opportunity, the, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury's office, the, the new Justin Welby's uh, office, got in touch with us and said that at the beginning of his ministry as the Archbishop of Canterbury, he would like to mark it in prayer, mark it by praying. And so next, next uh, Thursday, he's going to go on what is called the journey of prayer. Five days, five different cathedrals, prayer rooms and prayer stations in the cathedrals for the archbishop to just go and pray for five hours each each day and uh we're the first one's in norwich so that that's next thursday archbishop canterbury here now this is a man of god a man who loves god deeply at the beginning of his uh first press conference his opening words were ladies and gentlemen of the press i'd like to say a couple of words they all stop is come holy spirit so, you know, I, I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm kind of new church background, you know, all that kind of stuff. And but we are seeing God move. Across, you know, this is, this is the, the, the senior bishop of the Anglican Communion worldwide. 77 million Anglicans under, you know, that he has responsibility for, saying that I want to mark the beginning of my ministry as the senior bishop of the Anglican Communion worldwide in prayer. And so we found that I found myself yesterday in a in Lambeth Palace and all those kind of places, organizing this stuff and putting it together. But it's, it's a phenomenal moment that we live in, that not only are we, as Pete was saying, in financial decline and all sorts of, there have been riots on the streets. Now, where, where these guys, the Eden Project guys, want to pray is in the estates where these riots began. 
So just at the beginning of all this crisis and all this stuff like that, we're just seeing an increase, an absolute phenomenal increase in prayer in local churches, in prayer with larger agencies and larger denominations, in prayer with uh, you know archbishops to council estate scallywags. It's, it's phenomenal. And so uh, we're, we're excited. We're seeing growth. And, uh, yeah, I hope that boosts your faith a little bit. Right? Yeah, that's good, Brian. And this stuff doesn't just come out of nowhere. This is an answer to prayer. You know, it's stuff that we've all been praying for for years, right? It's starting to happen. So it's, uh, it's a start. It's small, but it's encouraging. And um, so I just wanted to provide a little bit of uh, context as we now think about the churches we're involved with and uh, how we help uh, develop these cultures of prayer uh, within all of uh, those. Um, So turn, if you could, in your Bibles to Acts 4, verse 23 to 31, one of the great apostolic prayers. If you're on your phone, don't play Angry Birds. Or you'll go to hell. Acts 4. We'll start reading at verse 23. Background, as you know, is Peter and John have just been hauled before the Sanhedrin. They don't know they're in the Bible yet. Um, They don't know what's going to happen next. All they know is their rural fishermen got caught up for not a very long period of time, three years with Jesus. They've been on this roller coaster... And suddenly they're pulled in front of the Sanhedrin, which, you know, they've, they've grown up to respect and look up to the Sanhedrin. And so these people carry enormous psychological, cultural weight. And they have said to Peter and John, you've got to shut up about the gospel. We may think that some of our people are intimidated about the gospel. There's a lot, lots, of, lots of confidence in the gospel. Well, this was the ultimate intimidation. So uh, let's look at this together. On their release, Peter and John, verse 23, went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, look at this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I want you to get the pace of that. This was not, they planned a prayer meeting. There was this eruption, this spontaneous response in prayer. Prayer was, you get the feeling with, with the church that time, you just scratched the surface and they would pray. And let's look at what they prayed. And uh, I want you to stay with me on this, because if you're anything like me, you'll sort of, there'll be a little bit of a yeah, yeah, yeah over the first few verses until you get to the meaty bit. But that, there's, a, there's a reason for reading all of this, okay? So they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. 
And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. This is clearly an explosive moment. The room shakes. The Holy Spirit is poured out. They realize that Pentecost wasn't a one-off. And there's this new courage in uh, preaching the gospel. They refuse to back down. I want to draw some uh, points out of this little vignette. And first let me say this. You probably know John Wimber used to say uh, that every effective ministry has to have three things. A theology, a model, and a practice. A theology, a model, and a practice. Many of us try to move straight from theology to practice without a model, and we fail. That's why lots of people have a theology of evangelism, but they see almost no one saved. <laughs> There's a gap between theology and practice called model, a lack of model. That's why at this time we're seeing models like Alpha multiplying, because suddenly people who believe in evangelism go, okay, this is how I can do it, and then you get a practice, which is no less kingdom, and no less supernatural, uh, because it's been driven through a model. Uh, models are just incarnation in another form. Uh, that's why uh, Terry Virgo's message is so powerful, because everyone has theology, church. Please don't think that people didn't have an ecclesiology before the 1970s in the UK. <laughs> people had ecclesiology, but he came and said, this is how you do eldership. This is how you do governance. This is how you do church discipline. This is how the gifts of the Spirit can fit together with the body. He began to help create models for how to do church. Now, you may come back and say, well, it's just biblical. But, guys, we got, you know, there, there are nuances. There are cultural distinctives. We, we can look at people who do things a little bit differently and still say, you might be right, we might be wrong. As long as we see the kingdom, it's all good, right? And, and, and so a, a theology of church became a practice of church. And a 25-year-old who's passionate about the Lord and has seen a few friends saved can come and connect with you guys and find out how to plant a church because you have a model for it, right? And 24-7 similar. As I've tried to make the sense of this weird hijacking of my own life, uh, I think it's because everyone has got a theology of prayer, but the reality is we struggle to know how to do it because the only wineskin we've had has been prayer meetings, and most prayer meetings are boring as hell. And by the way, hell is really, really tedious. Right? And so according to your uh, theological background... Um, you will either, your prayer meeting, either when you say let's pray, everyone starts shouting in tongues. Uh, and introverts and new Christians think they're bad at prayer. They're not. They just find it weird to shout in tongues. Or you may have a different background, uh, whereby when someone says let's pray, everyone moves into the toilet position. You start shampooing their hair. And you have long silences and long speeches to God and everyone else getting bored and making slightly strange guinea pig noises in the background. Right? And new Christians and extroverts probably finding that one hard. And, 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 and they think they're bad at prayer, but they're not. It's just, you know, the prevailing personality of, uh, that has shaped the ecclesiology. And our ecclesiology gets shaped by our theology and by the personalities of our founders. Uh, then prevails, and people who don't fit with that personality type or have slightly divergent theologies maybe sometimes find it hard to find their own vocabulary in prayer or mission or whatever it is. 
And so we need a theology, we need a model, and we need a practice. And if we are going to grow prayer in the churches that we are pioneering or we're seeking to uh, develop, then please do not shy away from models. You must have a theology of prayer. And by the way, I think a lot of people think they've got a theology of prayer, but they don't really. <laughs> if you don't have a theology of prayer, you ain't going to pray. You know, if you're a hyper-Calvinist, you probably, I mean, hyper-Calvinist. This is not Calvin bashing. This is hyper-Calvinist. You know, the sort of like insane sort of levels of Calvinism. <laughs> you're probably going to struggle to pray. Because what's the point if everything is inevitable from the start? Equally, if you're hyper-Arminian, and you, you're going to struggle to pray because you're just saying, why pray when we can get on and make it happen, right? So theology is going to be important. Yeah, some of you are much more pleased with the Arminian point than the hyper-Calvinist point. There we go. It's a spectrum, baby. Some of you are looking really worried. Pioneer. What do I remember about pioneer? You know we've got much more common than we've got different. And uh, so we've got to have a theology of prayer. Now, um, let's just look at the theology in this prayer in Acts chapter 4. Those of you who just laughed are going to be thrilled with this next point. First of all, the early church, their theology of prayer begins with sovereignty. What's the opening word of their prayer? Sovereign Lord, right? And then later on they say... Um, they, 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 they look at the past and they look at what's happening in their midst and they say, verse 28, uh, that the, the, the rulers of their time did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So we, we've got to have a high view of God. If we don't believe in the power of God and the prevailing power of God, we're going to struggle to pray, right? Some people, they, they, there will be people in your churches who fundamentally, for reasons maybe they've been hurt, they've been disappointed... They prayed big prayers that don't seem to have happened. One of the reasons I think it's very important we talk honestly about unanswered prayer. Uh, we have to understand the power of God, the potential when we come to pray. And we see here that the, uh, these early uh, Christians spend, uh, this is a 138-word prayer, okay, if you read it in the NIV. It's 138-word prayer. And they spend 103 of those words telling God about himself. <laughs> and they only spend the last, whatever that is, 35 words asking God to do anything. You get the ratio there. Right? Three quarters is declaration and proclamation and worship. And a quarter is petition. Someone tell me why that's significant. Why is that? Why is that interesting? It builds faith. Absolutely. They are contextualizing their own crisis. Did she tell you that? That always happens, doesn't it? The woman comes up with the answer. It builds faith. It's so important. They're contextualizing their situation in God's story. And wherever you're working, in your village or town or city, whatever country you're in, whatever challenges you're facing, you'll, uh, you will not find faith by looking at the problems. You'll find faith by looking at the power of God and contextualizing your challenges in the context of what God is doing. Do we dare to believe that we are the fifth gospel? Do we dare to believe that... In a way, the Bible is still getting written and we're in it, and that the choices that we make will somehow determine 
the outworking of God's purposes. And so they, they, it's building faith. And I love, I think this is one of the great messages coming out of Bill Johnson and, 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 and uh, read in California. This thing of tell the stories of answered prayer. If you've only got one miracle, tell it again and again and again. You, you know that thing where people say, well, we can't have Joan telling her story of her Veruca being healed because, you know, we had that last year. Look, if all you've got is Joan's Veruca, keep reminding people that the sovereign Lord, who's the maker of the universe, healed her Veruca until you've got a second miracle to declare. Why? Because we're not just trying to impart an interesting bit of information. We are trying to build faith. Thank God that when you read a cool story in the Bible, it doesn't suddenly disappear. Oh, I've got that through to them. They should have remembered it by now. You can come back again and again, right? Because it's the word of the Lord and it generates fresh faith every time. Have you noticed that when the founder of any spiritual movement shares the uh, foundational stories, it never gets boring? Have you noticed that? In, in your church, whoever planted it, and they tell the story, it's really weird. It should be really boring by now. But it doesn't get boring. When Terry tells his, it doesn't get boring. Why? Because there is a, a, a sense, the word of the Lord, a movement of the Spirit, there's faith that gets released through the telling of the story. So yeah, it releases faith. Why else is it significant that uh, they spend the first three quarters of their great apostolic prayer telling God about himself? or worshipping builds faith why else yeah why on earth do we need to remind God of his promises what a very peculiar thing to have to do isn't it has he forgotten so why, why do we need to remind God of his promises yeah Prayer is a conversation with God. It's not magic. I'm going to talk about this in the next session, but it's interesting, isn't it? I, I love the Bartimaeus story, you know. <laughs> He's blind, you know, and he gets to Jesus. And it must have been a bit of all of this and knocking into people. And he's standing there in front of Jesus. And Jesus, as you know, says, uh, <laughs> what do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus, I'm convinced, went, duh. <laughs> yeah I want to see he says ah oh, okay okay God challenged me recently he said you pray vague prayers and I'm like oh God you know if I say just bless my kids today you know what that looks like he's like I, I kind of want you to articulate it yeah so reminding God of his promises and, and of course those two points are linked because in reminding God of his promises, what we're really doing is reminding ourselves of God's promises. Who here has ever experienced that thing where, you know, I don't know, you're praying for someone who's had years of depression, and you're, oh, Lord, would you just help them, whatever. And then you start to reflect on, I'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. And you find yourself saying, God, you promised that you would do this for this person. And a certain indignation starts to rise. Frankly, it's not happening, and your reputation's at stake, because you said something would happen that's not, can you feel that? is a faith that gets released I think God likes it the feistiness you know there is a reason he wrestled with Jacob he could have picked you know the way that Christians shake hands they just sort of slap their hands limply against one another he sometimes chooses people with a firm handshake you know he likes that 
So they, yeah, they worship, they praise, they remember God's promises and his power. William Temple, the great archbishop, said this, it is better to be an atheist than a Christian with a wrong view of God. We've got to get our theology right, and I know you guys are strong on that. Just one other quick thing on that before we move on from the sovereignty of God here. It is, it is simply this. Notice the relationship between prayer and worship. We have a completely false divide. It's funny as now we spent 30 to 40 years revolutionizing the way we did musical worship but putting almost no effort into revolutionizing the way we pray even though the Bible talks about prayer much more than it does than singing. Funny that, isn't it? You say to me, oh yeah. I mean, we really do. I mean, you think how long it takes for Tim Hughes to write the song then record it and make the CD, ship it out to a Christian bookstore, I know these days put it on iTunes, then you download it, and someone's got to learn it, then a band's got to come together and do all the bum notes, and then you've got to ship a drum kit in, and you've got to buy PA, and you've got to rehearse, and you've got to teach it to the song, the first the, the church, the first three times they sing it, they think it's a rubbish song, it's not until they've sung it through 25 times that they think it's a brilliant song. I mean, we put, a, oh yeah, video projects, all the stuff we do, all the effort, all the budgets we put into our worship, and do you know, we put almost no imagination, no creativity, and no budget into our prayer life, even though it's a higher biblical... No, it's an equally high biblical priority. you understand? And also, like, give me the Psalms. What is the Psalms? Is it the worship book? Well, two-thirds of it, or at least half of it, is lament. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because I did an analysis of the songs we sing on Sunday, and there's, it's all happy and very clappy. I'm not advocating we get together and get miserable together, but I'm just saying it's interesting. And, and then do we know when they were singing it and when they were saying it? We've built these false divides. I find worship leaders, young worship leaders, are happy to sing through the microphone, but will never pray through the microphone. Very interesting, that. And so one of the things, one of the work, I work a lot with Tim Hughes, and one of the things we open conversation is, what is the relationship between adoration and petition and intercession and when music kicks in? And maybe I can sing my petitions, you know, and maybe I can speak my worship. So the whole thing is much looser and more interlinked. And as we raise up our worship leaders, one of the things you need to be doing is get hot. If you want to see a culture of prayer grow in a church, get hold of the worship leader. First of all, ask them about their own prayer life. And ask them about the miracles they've seen and ask them how they're doing. Uh, and, and, and then um, start to, let's see how we can equip and train the person who already has the mic and is already leading the people in worship. How can they also lead people corporately in prayer on a Sunday? Because there's nothing worse than sort of Johnny Smiggins coming up and saying, we will now pray for Syria, you know. <laughs> and, and, and it's sort of boring and all the rest of it. That wasn't a word. If you have a Johnny Smiggins in your church, he is loved by Jesus. Um, now, also in this prayer, we see um, not just the sovereignty of God, but the great sense of the authority of the elect. They don't just remind God, as it were, of who he is. They remind themselves of who they are. And so, first of all, they say, Our Father David. They've just been taught by the Synod, who are like David's representatives. And they say, our father, David. Boy, they don't know they're in the Bible yet, and yet they're saying, we are in the Davidic line. Can you feel that? Can you hear that? 
And then they start talking about their mate, Jesus. The one who's been crucified in disgrace, and they call him God's anointed. You know, the Christ, the Messiah. Our Lord, Jesus. And so they're basically saying, we know who we are. The Sanhedrin may be telling us to shut up, but we know we're in the Davidic line. We know we're on the side of the anointed, the Messiah. We're the Messianic people. So they are in prayer reminding themselves of who they are, the true Israel. They are, faith is getting released as they discover again, God is with us and God is for us. And so just I draw some of these thoughts together on theology. There's a lot more we can do in terms of theology of prayer. I want to just wrap the, the, this together in uh, an understanding of encounter. I am coming back to this again and again. This, uh, this idea of an encounter with God as the touchstone of all Christian mission and experience. I'd rather talk about an encounter with God than prayer. I'd rather talk about an encounter with God than worship. I'd rather talk about an encounter with God than mission. Because to me, the whole thing began with encounter. Adam and Eve walking and talking with God in the cool of the evening. What is the first thing that happens when sin comes into the world? They hide from the presence of God, right? Encounter gets inhibited. And then we forward, uh, of course, to the second Adam in another garden. And he allows himself to be, as it were, naked before God. My God, my God. You know, take this cup from me. Encounter. Agonizing encounter. Of course it was. When you're on the cross, rizzled, cancerous sin in your body. Naked in front of your creator. Ashamed to even be within your own body because you have become sin. Hideous encounter. Don't believe that encounter with God is always pleasant. Nice. It's just got to be real. Me and God. And let's see what happens. And so then, of course, as you know, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we learn that we become temples of the Holy Spirit. We become houses of prayer for the nation in our communities. We, we learn to host the presence of God. And then ultimately... We will live in uninhibited encounter with God. And I think in our prayer rooms we just get a little foretaste of encounter. So I love the story of this guy on a, a college campus in Bluff, uh, Bluffton University in Ohio. He's talking to a girl called Amy. And she said, oh, sorry, I've got to shoot off now because I've got an appointment with God. And he, he wasn't a Christian. He was like, wow, that's quite a big deal. You know, Elvis would be good, but God, that's serious, you know. So she said, well, do you want to come? He said, sure, yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? So uh, they, they, they drove to a church where they'd been praying nonstop for six months at this point. And um, by the way, that's cool, isn't it? Because there was a time you had to go to South Korea to see that kind of stuff, and we now see it quite a lot in this country and America and everywhere else. And um, so they've been praying nonstop for six months. He steps in the prayer room and freaks out because first of all he sees his own name written on the wall. Someone's been praying for him. And then he encounters the Father's love, gives his life to the Lord, encounters God in that prayer room. Begins to, as he returns to the prayer room, 
uh, he begins to experience the healing and the fathering of God in his life. And then he says, as he kept coming back, he began to get burdened for his friends. You know, in America, uh, on university campuses, they have these things they call frat houses. You know, the students all sort of live together and party and get drunk and do bad things. And, uh, and uh, so he was in this fraternity. And um, he started to get this burden for his 33 frat brothers and uh, began to pray for them. And gradually, one after the other, he led them to the Lord. So from this place of encounter in the prayer room and getting his head together, he starts to, the encounter starts to spread out. And so by Christmas of that particular year, uh, yeah, 33 of his 34 frat brothers had come to Christ and instead of throwing these crazy parties they're worshipping and praying and whatever in the frat house. There was a one guy left who hadn't yet given his life to the Lord by Christmas, a guy called Tim. And I have a grudging respect for Tim. You know that thing? Like peer pressure is like serious, like no! Oh. <laughs> and um, Amy, remember Amy, she, she arranged to have like dinner with him over Christmas and by the end of the dinner she had led Tim to the Lord too. So that was the entire little microcosm of community there, saved through that one encounter with God. 27 days after Tim gave his life to the Lord, he was killed in a car crash. 27 days and then all eternity. Urgency. And he had been burdened in those 27 days because he wanted to see, he didn't want to see it stop with his frat house, but he started praying for his friends and for his family to come to know Jesus. And at Tim's funeral, they told the story I've just told you. And Tim's parents gave their lives to the Lord. And 15 of his high school football friends all gave their lives to the Lord at the funeral. All through encounters. It's interesting, isn't it, when prayer becomes a paradigm for mission. And I would theologically embed that in this notion of encounter. Okay, let's just talk a little bit now practically about models. Remember, I'm not going to talk about practice because I think practice happens when you've got the right theology and the right models. By the way, I'd like to have spent more time on theology. I'd like to have talked more about um, dealing with the, uh, the pain of unanswered prayer. I think it's quite important. I'd like to have talked more about spiritual warfare and uh, free will, but we're not going to get into that. So you can do all that stuff. Models. Let's just think about models. First of all, in no particular order, notice that the early church just all raised their voices together and cried out to God. So I, I often say to people uh, that this is not cultural, this is biblical. There's got to be a reason why every single part of the world where they're seeing revival, this is how they pray. All at once, raising their voices. And guys, if I can mobilize Holy Trinity Brompton in South Kensington to do this, you can definitely do it where you do. <laughs> Maybe you do already. But getting people, and, and what I do is I have a set spiel. When I've got a group of people, whether it's 100 people or uh, 1,000 people, I'm saying we're going to just raise our voices and pray. I, I, I get musicians up so that there's not like a dead sound in the background. I say, look, internal processes, we're about to do this. Get some thoughts in your head quickly so you know what to say. External processes just go blank, you know, because who knows what will come out of your mouth. 
and, and, and I say to those who are looking shocked that we're about to do this, uh, I say, look, you know, this is what they did in the Bible. They raised their voice together. They all prayed. We're going to do it. That's what they do in South Korea. This is what they do in Nigeria. This is what they do in Argentina. You know, maybe we've got something to learn here. And so I just give them a bit of space. I, it's this speech, and people take the mickey out of me because I do it again and again. But all the time, I'm putting people through, and then we raise our voices. And guys, don't ask me for a Bible verse for this one, but I've just got a hunch that there are sometimes things that get shifted when we pray in that way that don't when we just sort of say, Dear Lord Jesus... Amen type prayers. Do you know what I mean? When there's a little bit of militance. Do you, you, you probably all pray like that already anyway, don't you? Okay, we'll just keep doing it. It's good. Next, uh, notice that they, uh, we've talked about this, they prayed the scriptures. So important. When people say, I don't know what to pray, I don't know what to say to God, it often is because they've allowed attachment between the scriptures and prayer. Just like I talked about the divide between worship and prayer, we sometimes have a divide between scriptures and prayer. I mean, if, if the scriptures are the primary way in which God speaks to us, not the only way, but the primary way, then it's a good starting place. So let's teach people, let's especially teach young people how to take a bit of the Bible and not just read it exegetically. What does it mean? What is the context? What is the application? But to read it prayerfully for encounter. Does that make sense? Sometimes you'll use the scriptures, I've got to be careful how I say this, but in a, in a way that exegetically might not be quite correct, but is profoundly relevant to where you're at at the moment. Is that, is that okay? As long as you don't try and build a theology for it, you just say, God is saying this to me in this way. I mean, if you can speak through a donkey, he can speak through a slightly weird scripture. Do you know what I mean? Or, and, and so, but let's use the scriptures and teach people to pray them more and more. The next one, therefore, is this. We're going to pray the scriptures. We must teach on prayer. And you probably look at me and say, well, of course we do. But do you really? And maybe the answer is yes, but I travel a great deal in all sorts of different types of churches, and it shocks me how little people actually teach on prayer. I mean, you could actually look, look at some of the churches that you're involved with and actually look at the schedule. How much is, are you teaching on prayer? And is it proportional to how much the Bible talks about prayer? But if we're not teaching on prayer, then don't be surprised if people aren't really doing it. And uh, the next thing is notice that uh, the leaders are leading by example. This isn't the prayer meeting. They just all pray. Really important that your people see you praying. Do you know, guys, I lead a prayer meeting at HTB, 7 a.m. every Tuesday morning. Nicky Gumbel is always there. He doesn't lead it. He's just there. And he's leading a church now, 5,000 people. And you know, Alpha's in how many nations, and he's in and out of the Vatican. He's there. It, he has booked, you know, two hours. He was one of the first people to book time in the prayer room. He's in there. He does two hours of prayer with God without fail every couple of weeks in there loves it. And before that, he used to always go on a Friday down to a monastery uh, nearby, and they used to call him Man Friday, because he always turned up to pray on Friday. I, 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 personally, I think that's impressive. I also think it's important to tell you that, because he won't tell you that, but actually, until we see our leaders leading in prayer, we won't understand that this is integral. You know, Joy Dawson says, anything not born in prayer is born in pride. Anything not born in prayer is born in pride. 
prayer room is more powerful than every boardroom and every throne room in the world. I encourage you in discipling younger leaders to allow them to see your own prayer life. We'll be talking about this a little bit in the next session. There's got to be secrets between you and the Lord, but sometimes I think we just assume. Oh yeah, everyone knows I pray, but do they really lead by example, get to the prayer meeting? Here's another thing i found, that prayer tends to get delegated to people who are not very good leaders. Now don't hang me on this, but you know there's that thing I call a come follow me anointing. You know how Jesus could say come follow me and people would go, okay. <laughs> and, and you know that there are some people who can say come follow me and everyone goes, no. Right? Those tend to be the people that have a heart for prayer. It's much easier to take a natural born leader and teach them to pray than it is to take someone who's got a heart for prayer and teach them to lead. Right? And so you've got to get hold. And I would encourage, biblically, I challenge you. I challenge you, biblically, to, to, to explain to me how you can have any model other than the senior leader leading in prayer, corporate prayer. And yet I think most senior leaders delegate it. They outsource it. Because you've got that key, oh, and he's busy, isn't it? And there's a keen intercession, there's a little group that meets. We need a prayer. Hey, now if you say we do this prayer thing in our church and it's dire and it's dreadful and it's boring, stop it. John 15, the John 15 principle is a key tool for all leaders. What do I mean by that? I mean that we're all the time saying, where's the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And we bless it and we prune it. And where is there no fruit, we cut it off. If you're doing something, you call it prayer, but it's fact, effectively non-fruitful, cut it off. Stop it. Okay? And that includes a 24-7 prayer room, by the way. Of course it does. Stop it. And then, but listen, because the Holy Spirit is a, is a, is a prayer meeting, you know, he's praying continually. In groans, the words, and Jesus lives to intercede. So there's 24-7 prayer happening in heaven. If the Holy Spirit's in us, prayer will keep surfacing in our communities. And our job is to steward and nurture and prune that as leaders. So ask, where is it surfacing? Lead by example in prayer, as did Jesus and as did the apostles. Especially when things got busy. Finally, um, we can, I can I, you know, answer prayers about, uh, questions about prayer rooms. I can't answer prayers. I'm, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll get God to answer my prayers sometimes. Uh, I'll answer some questions in a second. But um, prayer rooms are an amazing model, and I, I know many of you have done it, but it, we only sort of discovered the uh, history of it after we started and suddenly realized, oh, my goodness, the church got born out of a 24-7 prayer room. Uh, and every major um, transitional moment in the history of the church came through people praying together night and day. Where did we come from? Where did the charismatic Pentecostal movement come from? 24-7 prayer in Azusa Street. Black and white, male and female, night and day, praying together in Los Angeles in 1906. Um, you know, where did the modern missions movement come from? The great missions movement of the Protestant age did not come from Luther's seminaries, but as you probably know, it came from a village of refugees in Hernhut in Saxony who prayed non-stop for a hundred years under the leadership of Count Ludwig Nicolaus von Zinzendorf. And after five years of non-stop prayer, they started to send out missionaries two by two and were the first to take the gospel to many nations. They were the first in this modern era to discover the power of telling the story of the cross, which we just assume that's how you do the gospel. They really discovered it, particularly amongst the Inuit. 
as they told the story of Jesus dying on the cross and tears started to roll and they realized this is getting through in a way nothing else was. I could talk a lot about the Moravians selling themselves into slavery, to, all out of a prayer meeting. We trace this right the way through, you know, back through Celtic history and the Desert Fathers and so on. The prayer room thing, we can talk more about that. But also, uh, prayer meetings. I am not anti-prayer meetings. And I know that this is Mike's heart too. Just because we don't want to be churches that just do a prayer meeting, we want to be, uh, uh, you know, churches of prayer, with a culture of prayer, doesn't mean we don't do prayer meetings. Because clearly this was a prayer meeting we're reading about here. And what I, my passion is let's do prayer meetings well. One of the ways we'll do prayer meetings well is leaders will lead. Uh, you, you know, and, and three-line whip. I mean, I'm actually challenging a couple of my leaders in Guildford right now because they're just n never at our prayer meeting. And I, I, I think it undermines their integrity and their credibility and their authority. Because you've got new Christians coming along and they're like, oh, that guy preaches, but he's never at the prayer meeting. He's so busy. That's interesting. And, um, and it's always got to be grace. It's all got to be grace. But we, 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 we want to encourage people into this. So um, with prayer meetings, um, we, we just keep it moving all the time. Every five minutes, there's change. Um, so we'll always weave worship and prayer together. That's the first thing. Make sure you've got worship in your prayer meetings. The second thing is um, uh, win hearts and minds. If you're going to pray about Syria, don't just say we're going to pray about Syria. Show them a video off the BBC or something you know, so that suddenly people feel it. They go, oh my goodness, look at that child who's lost his parents then people will pray. Um, just take a little bit of time preparing. You do for worship, you do for teaching, let's do it for our prayer meetings. Uh, we'll often split people into threes. We just say, get into threes, A, B, and C. I'm going to pray for Syria. A's, could you pray for the politicians, those trying to make peace? B's, could you pray for the church and the pastors who are trying to, uh, you know, solve the problems? C's, can you pray for the refugee crisis? Go. And then people know what they're doing. You've suddenly turned the prayer meeting and you've got Three people at the prayer meeting, fine, but if you've got 300, it still works. So we often do the ABC uh, thing. We often get people crying out all together, and so on. Brilliant. Okay, we've just got just a few minutes. I've, I've done a, a whip through. I, I'll just take a few questions, comments, and allegations. Um, but um, uh, just to recap as you're thinking that through, firstly, uh, you know, prayer, God, God wants his church to be a house of prayer for all nations but it's not just biblical, there's a sense the Holy Spirit is doing that in this nation and in the nations of the earth at this time, so let's, let's, let's address these issues and uh, we've got to have a theology of prayer, let's think about that, we've got to develop models of prayer prayer rooms, prayer meetings, uh, disciplines of prayer uh, John 15 uh, where there's fruit, let's bless it where there isn't, let's chop it off um, and uh, so let's develop models of prayer that there might be healthy practice and uh, if one of those uh, models is prayer meetings let's just do them well and make the cardinal rule they must never be boring quit while you're ahead so there you go any questions or comments So the question is about uh, generating, uh, who are the best people to generate new models, who do you get in the room? And um, 
which is a great one. Let, let me just take one step back to, in order to answer that. I, I believe passionately that we're all called to be intercessors because I believe in the priesthood of all believers. And I, I fundamentally see intercession as a priestly uh, duty, right? And therefore, I, I think one of the reasons why sometimes we've allocated certain types of people as intercessors is in order to <laughs> release them whilst relieving ourselves of the pressure. Very convenient. And the reason I say that is because actually I, I always want to hear. I, I think this is a this is a, this is this is an apost this is clearly a bit of apostolic DNA. And so you, I want to hear how the evangelists think we should pray. I want to hear how the pastors think we should pray. I certainly need to need the prophets in that space so that we're listening as well as talking. And so I, I actually do think that this is a developing models and strategies of prayer is, is a task for the fivefold ministries uh, and not just someone who's quite good at having ideas. Does that make sense? So that we've got a full-blooded expression of uh, prayer. If just the evangelists shape our prayer strategy, you know what it's going to be like, right? Um, if just the pastors do, you know what, the, what it's going to be like. Oh, Jesus, we just blessed this person. You know, uh, If just the prophets do, it's going to end up brilliant but barking mad you know and so but we put it all together we're going to have a healthy prayer life as a community anyone else yes so the, the question is about unanswered prayer the first thing is this the bible is more honest about unanswered prayer than we are Jesus himself lived with at least three unanswered prayers, one of which is unanswered to this day. So I think if Jesus experienced that, I'm sure we can. You know what they are, don't you? Come on, what are Jesus' unanswered prayers? Sorry? Take this cup from me. And <laughs> the survey said, ah, ah. Right? So, yeah, no, you've got to go through this one. Unity in the church. That's the one that's still, un unless I'm missing something that's still unanswered. So Jesus is living, uh, and, um, uh, and then another of the unanswered prayers is, is um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is a different kind of unanswered prayer. If take this cup from me is I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be sick, you know. <laughs> uh, I don't want my business to go bankrupt. Uh, Father, uh, why have you forsaken me is that where are you, God? Uh, dark night of the soul stuff. And... Um, so the Bible's more honest about answer prayer than we are. So we've got to think about the culture uh, that we're generating and how we provide space for mess. Uh, and, you know, my observation is that people often try and leapfrog um, Holy Saturday to get straight to Resurrection Sunday. So the moment there's any suffering, it's like, yeah, but Jesus died. We don't allow, God allowed the whole of the world to live with no answers, no meaning, no hope for 24 hours. We just don't, we pretend it didn't happen, right? A whole day. We talk about the three days, you know, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. There was a day in the middle. The Catholics stripped their altars bare on that day because they have nothing to say. The church has nothing to say on that day. Isn't that interesting? Luther said that, you know, on the cross, Christ himself became the atheist. Wow. And uh, uh, what does that mean practically? It means I attended a, a funeral one time where a man had died of a heart attack way too young. His kids were little, and they were there at the funeral, and everyone's dancing and trying to praise and be happy because he's now there with Jesus, and no one had the courage just to say, it hurts like hell, and there are no easy answers, and let's just live in this moment for a while before we declare the hope that we have in Christ. Does that make sense? 
And I don't think that's faith, by the way. I think it's unbelief. When we can't live with mess and paradox for a while, that's actually a form of unbelief. Because the Bible uh, trusts God enough to say, I don't understand. I don't have the answers. And so um, th- there's that piece. And then the other thing on answer prayer I think we've got to address is... Um, I guarantee that there will be people in any church and you, you call them to pray and the, their head noise is, I tried it and it didn't work. If we're not honest about that and we don't address that intellectually and emotionally, we'll never mobilize the church to pray no matter how good a model you develop. So I was asked to uh, speak to a church, a very large church in Florida about uh, you know, prayer and getting excited about prayer and it just nothing was working. And then someone took me aside and said, let me tell you the story. The pastor's wife got cancer. The whole church prayed like it had never prayed before. They fasted. They stayed up all night. She died. The pastor himself was so heartbroken, he never felt able to stand and just say, I don't understand. I'm hurting like hell, and we lost one. The next time, after he'd had a little bit of time off, he stood up and he started his sermon series on Melchizedek or whatever it was, and the church moved on. Everyone pretended it hadn't happened, but there was a wound in the corporate heart of that church. That means no one is going to be able to mobilize that church to trust God again until we have courageously talked about what happened and what didn't happen at that moment. Does that make sense? And one of the things that encourages me most about God on mute is by being honest about my own struggles in prayer. I know Mike's got... Uh, similar uh, stories um, is that people have said it really ha- it saved my faith, brought me back to faith or it helped my faith and I find that by being honest about our disappointments in prayer we gain the authority to talk about the victories and the miracles we also do see in prayer So, uh, and that book is I hope a useful resource and there's uh, quite a few churches actually do use it when they feel like actually this is a corporate issue for us as a church there's a discussion guide and, you know, they do the old book circle thing and work through it. Because I think until we deal with those wounds in the soul of the community, we're going to struggle to move on and call people to faith uh, once again. So, cool. Any other questions? <laughs> the question is, how would we define unfruitful prayer? I mean... You know, we, we, need, we ourselves need to be prayerful about these decisions because we all know that sometimes those three old ladies could be the most fruitful thing in the entire church. So we do need to ask the Lord to give us discernment. But um, I can't give you a formula. But I suspect that each one of us here could name some activity in a church that we're associated with that we go, do you know what, we're just doing it because we do it. And it's not really releasing the kingdom of heaven. And I think, um, you know, for example, with prayer rooms, uh, I've never tried to persuade someone to start one, other than in my own church. Um, People just do. I've regularly told people to stop because they're burning out and they're getting knackered and it's becoming legalistic. So that would be an example. Um, If you've got a prayer meeting that's, you know, poorly attended, it's like flogging a dead horse, there's... Uh, very little faith it might be best just to give it a break and then relaunch Um, yeah so I'm sorry in a way you're asking very specific questions but you as leaders you'll have discernment over these, these things so yeah
the question is how do you sustain it? And this is a really important question. Mike Bickle says if, if prayer is not uh, enjoyable, it will not be sustainable. And so we, we've got to make prayer enjoyable. Um, uh, and um, I think that's easier than it sounds, actually. Um, I, I think as well we need to develop rhythms of prayer. We talk a lot about a sort of Celtic cycle where you have a season of prayer and intimacy with God, moving into a season of mission, um, maybe before an alpha course or something like that, moving into then a season of fun where you say, do you know what, we're, we're not going to be doing a bunch of 24-7, we're not going to be running alpha, we're just going to have a lot of barbecues and enjoy kingdom of heaven together. And what I find about a cycle like that is each phase gives birth to the next. If you pray a lot, it starts to give birth to mission. And then uh, when mission happens, there's often quite a lot of work to do in then discipling the people who get saved, and you need a bit of space to do that. But then once you've had 25 barbecues and eaten however much horse meat, there's something and you start saying, do you know what, I don't want to read another Frederick Forsyth novel. I want to read a Christian book. And do you know what, I don't want another barbecue. I want to press into the presence of God again. I miss him. And so I think we, as leaders we need to think about seasons of life that are appropriate to the scale of the community that we are uh, investing into. I mean, to me, you know, HTB, 5,000 people, it's a no-brainer. It actually only takes 24 people to do 24-7. It's very easy. It's incredibly easy. And you only need to do an hour of prayer a day in a world where 1.4 billion Muslims pray five times a day. It's not that outrageous once in a while to say, do you fancy doing an hour of prayer a day? Some of you are antisocial hours, admittedly. Um, but I think you do have to make sure it's sustainable um, and enjoyable. And, uh, and all the time you're going to be getting that balance between grace, 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 and yet calling people to live up to their aspirations. And it's, it's always that balance. So. There's a few thoughts. There's a question here, yeah. 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 Great question. And it's one that we'll be answering in the next session. The question is, how, do you, how long do you keep praying? When do you know you've got breakthrough? All that kind of stuff. The first thing is, Jesus did devote one parable specifically to the importance of persevering in prayer and not giving up. And so we do have to just get the whole discipline and prayer of just... I, I call it stacking dominoes. You know, the, you know the, the kid on Blue Peter, those of you of this generation, remember the most exciting thing that ever happened on Blue Peter was the prepubescent boy who stacked like 5,000 dominoes to try and get into the Guinness Book of Records. You know that one? Uh, and then it went off as thrilling. And this vast sort of hissing anaconda sort of dominoes just came down in the studio. Uh, just from flipping the one. And I sometimes think that uh, pray, perseverance of prayer is like stacking dominoes. And um, you pray the same prayer you've prayed a thousand times or five thousand times before, and then one day the whole lot comes down, you get the breakthrough. And the danger with the church is, 
um, if you happen to be standing on your left leg eating blancmange at the time, you say, the reason I got breakthrough was I was on my left leg eating blancmange. And then the world is so broken and hurting and desperate for the power of God that you write a book about it, it becomes a bestseller, and everyone starts eating blancmange and standing on the left leg. You then start to conferences, and before you know it, within 500 years, there's a denomination that stands on its left leg eating blancmange. And within the Trinity, the Father goes, wait, why, why do they do that? And Jesus says, it's the Holy Spirit's fault. We were trying to time the breakthrough when they were doing nothing of interest whatsoever. They just happened to be on the left leg eating blancmange, and now there's a whole denomination, right? So, yeah, I, I, and, and the point is, we, we end up, I don't know about you, but I end up, I've prayed the same prayer so many times, it's like a Roger's thesaurus. I'm like, God, please save my brother. God, would you please rescue my brother? Lord, would you please bathe him in the blood of the You know, it's like, how can I find another way of saying the same old thing? And in my prayers for my own wife, at the start, they were very long and very loud, and there were a lot of tears, and by the end, you would have thought I was blaspheming. I just think about her, and I think about my bank account, and I think about my kids and whether they would ever know their mom, and whether one day I'd have to hold up a photo and say, this was her, she was great, you'd have loved her, she'd have loved you. And all I could do was just say, oh, God. <laughs> I didn't even know if it counted. I was worried about getting eliminated on a technicality, you know, because I didn't take her to Bethel or, you know, get some power evangelist to pray for her or fast for long enough or use the right words or you know and I just had to come back to grace oh god <laughs> so sometimes that's what it is it's just stacking dominoes and then there are times in prayer where you know you got the breakthrough you just know it you feel it bang you just know it. you stop praying and you just rest in it from there on you've prayed through as they used to say so there's a few thoughts We've overshot, haven't we, Mike? Cool. Thanks.